right, well, thanks everybody for coming today. We'll be starting in chapter 21. And we ended here, we kind of got cut short last week, but we ended with talking about a pretty, for most people, I would say a difficult verse where it sounds like they're condoning slavery. But what we see is, uh, in the Hebrew term is actually ebed, and it designates a range of social and economic roles. So, of course, we ask, like, well, why would someone want to become like an ebed, which is often the equivalent of like an indentured servant. And a really good analogy would be like, you know, let's say somebody has over $100,000 in college debt and they realize they got ripped off <laughs> or if they lost their home, you know, days before insurance and they basically lost everything, but you've still got all this debt. Well, it may not be a bad idea to find a good master and yeah, sell yourself contractually, so there are rules, into indentured servitude so that your master, yeah, you serve him for six years because of course there's a, they put a limit on it of six years so that in that seventh year, right, you get your Sabbath rest, <laughs> but it wipes out your debt and you're able to start clean. And we even saw then, if you like that situation, you like working for this guy and you consider him like a father and maybe he's a grandfather to your children at that point, you can, it's weird in English, but you know, there's this uh, uh, ritual they do, they even pierce his ear and you can say, I'm gonna be this guy's servant for the rest of my life because I'm a part of his family. And then where we kind of got cut off, uh, oh yeah, and I wanted to say, you know, I was in the Navy for six years, ironically, and that's exactly kind of how I thought about it too. Like I'll, I'll serve in the Navy for six years. Legally, I don't have the liberties I used to. They legally can tell me I have to do things. I'm not allowed to quit. But at the end of the six years, I gained a bunch of skills and it got me to where I wanted to be here working for ERCOT for, uh, for a, uh, some managers that are infinitely and exponentially better than the managers I had in the Navy. But if I wanted to quit, I could. <laughs> so me being an indentured servant for six years, was a, it was actually a pretty good deal. Um, but then we got to the challenging one where, it, at least the way we translate it, when a man sells his daughter as a slave. Well, um, it feels worse. But again, there's this assumption that she's marrying into the family. So it's not even ebid, like indentured servant. Um, it, it's a different word. But she can't get tossed aside, you know. And if they did just kind of toss her aside, uh, she can just leave. So in an ancient culture, every father arranges a marriage and there's always a dowry. So yes, there's a financial transaction going on. But, you know, there's a dowry and there's a bride price and both families put money investing in the future of the family. So they're investing in the relationship between these two people. And the father is expected to be involved. So slave is not the right word in English, but that's probably because they'd be accused of being soft on the text. But that's really not what's going on. So anyway, here the father, it's possible in this example, the father couldn't afford a dowry. 
And the master is socially then, potentially, quite frankly, being generous to accept a wife with no dowry. Um, yeah. And he would still play, pay the bride price. So this isn't like, let me sell my daughter for some extra cash. That's not what's going on at all. And it is this. I want my daughter, even though I can't afford a dowry, to be able to have a family of her own. And without an agreement like this, she wouldn't be able to. There's even a stipulation that if this relationship really doesn't work out, she can't be sold again or anything like that. She goes back to her family of origin and her father can take care of her again. So these laws, even though we read them in English and they just sometimes bother us, what's actually going on is the laws are set up to defend and... Uh, um, to defend and make sure that the most vulnerable aren't taken advantage of. So uh, let's, that kind of wraps. This is only for Hebrew slaves. Yeah, and it's, it's specifically then for, for yeah, for the, this Hebrew nation. And as we also saw last week. So if they had a foreign slave, it might be a different story. Well, if a foreign, right, if a foreigner, there, well, we're actually going to get into another law about, uh, you know, it says if a man, like, hits his slave, what, how's, what happens? So we'll, we'll get into that. But foreigners are often kind of, uh, grafted into the family tree. But it also just says, um, it, it, it doesn't specific, the laws are for the Hebrews, but you're expected to treat foreigners the same way. Wouldn't that be because uh, anything that God, any law that God does is to keep his people holy so he can live amongst them? Because if they acted in an unholy character, it's the goal, that's the ultimate goal. So he's trying to keep his people in a, living an acceptable life so he can dwell among them. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's part of it. And then the other part is as we see in Deuteronomy when Moses is saying like the reason we have all these good laws is so the the surrounding nations can say, look at how awesome Yahweh is and look at these righteous laws which with in which they live and it's a blessing for them. So the laws themselves aren't designed to like cramp their style or allow the rich to oppress the poor. In fact, it's the opposite going on. It's that, and then there's always the if-then laws, that if this thing, which is less than ideal, happens, then this is how you handle it. So it's not ideal that a man can't afford a dowry for his daughter. But if that's the case, and then someone is still willing to marry her, even though she doesn't have this dowry protection, then he can't abuse her. And if he does not live up to his marital duties and he does cast her aside and treat her like a, you know, a lesser wife, then she can leave. She's not bound in that. If he doesn't live like, you know, the husband he's supposed to be in the same way that Yahweh is the husband of his people in this marriage covenant, that he's making with him at the foot of Mount Sinai, then he can leave.
or she can leave and the father takes her back, you know, so she doesn't have to live under oppression. But ideally, you're living by all the laws. You're living as the people of Yahweh <laughs> and, uh, and it all works out. Uh, and I think one of the, like the wisdom pieces that we can take out of this is God expects, you know, his parents to be involved in their children's lives, even up to the age of getting married. So when your kids start dating, which is a terrifying thought since my oldest is only nine, but, um, yeah, it's probably wise for you to be involved and protect them. And that doesn't, you know, I, in today's society, you probably don't want to be such a helicopter parent that you drive your children away, but hopefully you've built a relationship where they do respect you to the point of, you know, they take honor your father and your mother. And because of the way you've lived and raised them in a Christ-like way, then they will look to you um, kind of in that priestly role, right? If you That you represent God to them <laughs> and then you pray to God for them, you know, so even in, in the parent role, you still have kind of a priestly role going on. So... Um, yeah, let's open, we've sort of already opened, but open with a word of prayer and then, uh, we'll move on to a couple more laws and then get on to the golden calf. Heavenly father, we thank you for, uh, another day. We ask that you bless our time here as we dive into your word and help us always, uh, look to you first and have no other gods in our hearts. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, the last law before we kind of fast forward a little bit. Um, verse 20. So same chapter, chapter 21, verse 20. Uh, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Literally there, it's the slave is his silver. Okay, what is going on here, right? Is this condoning beating your slaves to death? Well, no. In fact, the phrase uh, shall be avenged. If you murder your slave, the death penalty still applies. That's what's going on. <laughs> That's what's going on. But since in this contract that they have, the his servant or his slave, his Evid, is like a finan his financial reward, right? Especially if he's bought his debt. So if the slave survives, then the punishment of, well, you have to take care of him now and he's out of commission. So there's your punishment, right? That um, if you murder him, then yeah, you get the death penalty because he's still made in the image of God. But if you just beat him up, which is implied this is still wrong, then no, the death penalty doesn't apply. And your punishment is he's out of commission for who knows how long, but you don't get to take it out of him, on him. But it says if he survives a day or two. Yeah, I think the implication is he if he doesn't die. Him. Yeah. Now there's also, so there's manslaughter laws also that we would, in that situation, whoever's the judge here, you know, one of the people that Moses appoints, they would take all the laws, not just this one. So there are manslaughter laws that are given later about like, if you 
uh, hit somebody in anger, um, basically, it's very similar, kind of, in, in the way that ours are set up with murder versus manslaughter. And it's like one of those things, if you push a guy and he falls down and hits his head, you don't necessarily get the death penalty because you didn't intend to murder him. But if you hit him with a piece of metal, <laughs> like a, you know, a metal rod or something like that, and he dies, then yeah, that was murder. Because obviously if you have, both could have been done in anger, but hitting somebody with a metal rod has the intent of killing them, whereas maybe just pushing them does not. So don't quote me exactly, but that's exact, you know, that's pretty close to the way it goes. And we have similar laws to that too. And this has come up multiple times in, in major cases, you know, that, that, that make the national news about whether they go. And often because these major cases become political, this is the sad part of a lot of it is, you know, half of the people are screaming for, you know, murder when if you take an ob objective look at the case, the person who killed the other person deserves to be punished. But were they, did they intend to kill them? Did they go in preemptively intending to murder this person? No. The answer, if you're being objective, is no. <laughs> All right? Now, that doesn't mean the person isn't guilty of manslaughter. But because it's made political, the DA has to go for murder. And then the jury says, this isn't by definition murder. So they have to acquit the guy. And then entire you know, rows of businesses get burnt to the ground. You know what I'm saying? It's like the person is guilty, but not of murder. It's guilty of manslaughter. But if the DA went for manslaughter, then it's like, oh, he's being soft on, you know what I mean? So this is also very similar to what they're dealing with here. And hopefully your judges are staying true to the intent of all the laws. Well, they didn't have any judges then. They just had this law. Well, when I say judges, like, so going back to Jethro, Moses appoints right. judges among them. And it, it's in that term. So we're not in the time of the judges yet, but whoever is appointed to be an elder and decide these cases would be that Hebrew term of judge. So now uh, let's fast forward to chapter 22. There's one other law I want to cover because it's often cited as like the rape law. Chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 16. And 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If the father, father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. All right, people of Austin said, like, oh, this is uh, condoning rape because it's a patriarchal society. Well, Actually, what it's doing is holding up a high view of marriage that if a man seduces, and that word seduce, I looked it up in elsewhere outside of a sexual content, it really is like deceive. So I think seduce is the perfect translation here. If a man seduces a virgin who isn't betrothed, so isn't legally married or about to be married, then he's expected to man up and, uh, right, in, in a good scenario, like, Maybe he was hoping to marry her anyway. I mean, that's the best case scenario here. But he's like, yeah, you've done this. And this is the culture in which you live that if a young woman all of a sudden isn't a virgin, then that bride price, you know, like 
I'm sorry, but there's implications here. So to protect her, <laughs> it's you're supposed to stand up, be a man then, and take care of her. Hey, you wanted her as a wife, right? Because it's supposed to be between, sex is supposed to be between a husband and the wife. So, hey, you wanted to play husband? Now you're expected to step up and do that. But imagine if she has regrets then, and if he is a sleazy guy, the father still can utterly refuse to give her to him. So the father is still expected to look after his daughter. And if that happens, then he has to pay the money equal to the bride price anyway. So there's still this, hey, you seduced my, vo my, uh, my daughter. This isn't rape. Elsewhere, that's clearly condemned. But if you did, you still have to pay the bride price. <laughs> It keeps the guy in check. So he's either expected to marry or, and then be a godly father or husband. But if that doesn't work out because the families are like, no, 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 absolutely not. Then he's still expected because he seduced this virgin. He's still expected to financially make her whole. Wow. So that's what's going on. It's not condoning rape. <laughs> and remember again, any if if he did, then the punishment would have been much more severe. That's a whole other law. But this also gets it on the books that because in another law it says if you have sexual relations before you're married, then they could one of them could like she could have been stoned to death. Right. I mean, the, the she could be stoned. Yeah. If if he started doing. The rape scenario, or didn't, you know, so it protects her, saying that this is basically consensual, but he he seduced her, so it doesn't put the onus of she did something wrong in the eyes. It 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 protects her from not being put in a position where she does. It wasn't it wasn't out in the middle of a field where she was raped and no one could hear her. You know what I mean? In oh, the law. So it yeah. Protects her. It protects the female. Yeah, and the deceiving here. Again, like, I think the deceiving does imply that, I mean, just that, the, the seducing. I think that's a, that's a good translation in modern English, right? The idea of seducing. She doesn't have to prove that she was being raped and didn't say anything. Yeah. Because if she didn't say anything, then basically she could be killed in another law. Yeah. In other words, she didn't seduce him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for time purposes, we're going to go past chapter 23. I might come back later to chapter 23 and like make a podcast, but I think we got to kind of move on. And we're going to bounce all the way to um, the golden calf in chapter 32. This is the last really important story. So some of the things we, we fast forward through, Moses up on the mountain starts uh, getting 
plans for the tabernacle. So there's a bunch of laws, and then there's plans for the tabernacle. And it's the golden calf, we'll see, uh, we'll notice the part of the story where it's in. It's in the middle of setting up the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is already primarily about worship and making a way to repair the relationship between Yahweh and the people. So God already knew that the people were going to sin. So he already, even before this event, had made plans for a means to which to repair that relationship. So I think it is important that right smack dab in the middle of setting up the tabernacle and this system for constantly repairing the relationship between God and the people, that's where the golden calf comes into play. So let's uh, just read through it. All right. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Okay, so they said, make us gods. Now remember in Hebrew, Elohim, which is the word we often translate it, big, big G, right? God, clearly referring to Yahweh. It takes singular stuff when you're talking about Yahweh. So it's kind of like the plural of majesty or the royal plural that even though we say Elohim, which is grammatically plural, when we're talking about singular Yahweh, it takes singular verbs and singular other stuff. But here it is plural. So they are saying, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what happened to him. So Aaron, Aaron's response is so interesting. Aaron says to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them up to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, uh, they, the people, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And because they said these, you know, again, plural, saying, referring to God, but Aaron... When he saw all this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So I feel like Aaron here, man, we'll contrast Moses' leadership and Aaron's leadership later, but Aaron... I'm not like, right, what he did was wrong, obviously, because the first commandment that they said, we're going to live by this, is don't worship any other gods, right, plural, and then don't make a graven image. So even if you say Aaron is trying to smooth this over and sort of say, okay, guys, I don't know what you're, no, no other gods, but I'll make a statue and it'll be Yahweh, okay? <laughs> We'll also remember that in the ancient mindset, it's not that they thought like idols, physical idols had magical powers. What they were doing was making a, uh, a house for their God. And then they would even often like drill holes in the nostrils so that they're inviting the spiritual being into the idol and then they can like sort of control it. 
So on some level, right, maybe by making this idol, they're hoping they can control Yahweh, but that's not who Yahweh is. But I think with them, it is just so quickly, right, this stiff-necked people. They're like, I don't know, Yahweh may have killed Moses, so maybe we need to find new gods. But Aaron is like, okay, well, make this idol, but no, we'll call it Yahweh. You know, so he's like trying to thread the needle here and appease the people while still staying true to Yahweh. And I think part of the wisdom that we can take from this is God is God. What God says is true. And if you are going to confess that you're a Christian, then you have to take all of God. You can't pick and choose the parts that sound nice and fluffy that are palatable to the world. Because as soon as you start using your, you know, quote unquote, right, authority as a church to try to appease the world and say, oh, we're not like all the other judgmental Christians or X, Y, or Z, and you start conforming to the world, that's what is going, you're being an errand. Yeah, you're Frankensteining it. Yeah, you're being an Aaron. And uh, I mean, there's, right, we could name them, several Christian groups that have, it is so clear, they have contempt for the word of God. They're constantly apologizing for the word of God. And they've taken what the world holds up as their gods. And they're trying to pull an Aaron and say, Make the golden calf of the world proverbially and say, this is Yahweh your God who has led you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For us now, it's slavery to sin, you know. But God, remember, yeah, they're the classic example of their merciful, right? God or Yahweh, Yahweh, we're going to read it in a minute. God who is compassionate and merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth and faithfulness. But who will by no means clear the guilty? You know, there's the gospel about, hey world, Christ died to redeem you and forgive your sins. So repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> you know, that's it. That is the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Um, that doesn't mean we do the law perfectly. But, yeah, it turns out, and our confessions are very clear about this too. James, the book of James, that's what it's all about, is like, no, that doesn't mean you're perfect, but you ought to see a regenerate life, you know? Not condoning the world to try to appease the world. <clears throat> Look, the world already hates you, you know? That's what I always say. The world already hates Christianity and everything it stands for, because it starts, we, yeah, we start with, we are poor, miserable sinners. Therefore, we need the free love of God. The world hates that message. And that, that, you know, that's one thing, like in the Navy, having discussions with guys, I don't, you know, very cordial discussions, but, you know, it's something, it took me years to kind of ponder this, but multiple guys have said, I just... Dude, I just can't get over the con the concept of sin. Like, I don't like the term sin. Well, it's like, yeah, of course you don't. No one likes to, you know, no one likes their sin. They don't want to be called out on like what I'm doing. Is it? Yeah, yeah. They don't. 
And then it's all the physical effects of that sin, whether it's, you know, living the sort of life that in Hollywood they say you should live. They make movie, you know, like there's, there's all the media is about like, yeah, you make all these bad choices and then there's these effects. And then it's like the personal, you know, you have to believe in yourself and pull yourself up out of your choices. So it's like they'll hold up and worship the things that got them in that scenario. And instead of admitting that, oh, these choices were wrong, it's no, those were still right. You just didn't love yourself hard enough. That was the problem. If only you loved yourself harder, you know, then everything would be fine. And, you know, Aaron's also like, he's also the story of God's grace. Because Aaron is, I mean, he just left Egypt with the rest of them. And yeah. like you were saying, they thought you had to build something where your God had to inhabit or he would just not stay with you. So he's, I mean, I'm not making excuses for Aaron, but he's just as confused as the rest of them. You know, he, and, and how, I mean, he's, he's experienced more than they have, but he is still like, I got all these people here, well, we want God to live with us, we don't know what happened to Moses, and we want him to live amongst us, and God, he, it's just like, he doesn't, he doesn't know how to think, he doesn't know how to think like Moses thinks yet. Yeah. Yeah, and he's he still got, he definitely has some learning to do. And it is so true. You know, we know the full story. We've read it all. And I'm, you know, especially in the past, I've had always been such a huge people pleaser. And I'd imagine, I don't know, maybe I'd relate to Aaron more than I'd care to admit. Where it's like, well, I don't want the people to burn the whole place to the ground and riot. And if I act like Moses, maybe that's what would happen. I don't know. Yeah, so he tries to thread the needle and appease everybody. I can appease Yahweh by saying it's a feast to Yahweh and I can hold down the fort until Moses gets back. Maybe that's what he's thinking. Yeah. Well, anyway. uh, All right. Oh, yeah. And then verse six, they rose up to play. The verb for play here, we won't dwell on it too much, but it 100% implies a sexual connotation. So they're having, and this is really common in the ancient Near East, that at um, feasts for gods, there would often be some sort of like sexual... Orgy. or Yeah, orgy, some sort of sexual thing going on. And that's the implication here as well. All right, seven. And Yahweh said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They had turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Therefore, or now therefore, let me alone, leave me alone, that my, my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. So I'm going to destroy these people and start over with you, Moses. But Moses implored Yahweh his God and said, Oh, Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? 
Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And Yahweh relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So again, it's I'm going to destroy these people and start over with you. And it's like your people that you brought up out of the land of Egypt. It almost sounds like a marital couple fighting here, you know, arguing. And uh, then Moses says like, okay, you are the one who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And remember your promises, right? I know they screwed up. But instead of destroying them, how about you just forgive them and remember your promises? And God says, okay, you know, and it's not that I think God necessarily changed his mind. Of course, he's omniscient. His ways are smarter than ours. And, you know, his thoughts are greater than our thoughts. So he knew how this was going to go down. But at the same time, I very much think that this invites us to wrestle with God in our prayers. Uh, In fact, that's what Israel means, right? To wrestle with God. And even before that, it was Jacob, you know, it means like supplanter, but it means deceiver, right? So like we were deceptive in our ways and God made us one, made us as people through his covenants. And now it's, you know, even with our prayers, we see here, Moses challenges God and that is the the right thing to do, you know, to intercede for the people. Don't you think it's also... um... That was all God. It was all. I mean, it's not like God didn't know it was going to happen. Yeah. So it's also a test for Moses because Moses, if he was very prideful, he could have said, "Good idea." Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. He, he wanted exactly. To make sure Moses, you're the one that's going to have to deal with these people and the right guy for the job. Yeah. He wanted to make sure Moses made the correct choice. So it is a test for Moses as well. And as we talked about testing, it's not so God can see whether you're going to choose him or not. It's to bring out your own character. So testing a lot of times, yeah, it's for us in our own spiritual growth. And if we're weak, it shows where we're weak and where we need to ask God for help. But Moses intercedes for the people. Shows his love and compassion. Yeah. For his own people, acting as high priest. Moses is acting as high priest. He's 100% acting as high priest. Yeah. He's showing his, his deep love for the people. And this is the love that God gave him. That God put in his heart. Yeah. So, with that love, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. I think it's interesting. He already knew what was happening, but he saw it with his own eyes And it burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burnt it with fire and ground it into a powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. 
I wish I knew if there was some deep symbolism going on, on there. I, I really I couldn't find anything, but it seems fitting. <laughs> you know, it seems fitting that they have to drink it. Um, I'm sure that killed them. <laughs> well, I mean, if it, it's a slight powder, I mean, it would be one of those long terms term heavy metal poisoning. Uh, yeah, you right. know. Yeah. Gold. Yeah, I think <laughs> it was more. I mean, you can't drink it unless it's hot. Uh, yeah, well, he ground it into a powder and he spread it over. So it was more symbolic than anything else. But don't you ever, when you're reading some of the stuff, though, realize how strong physically Moses had to be at yeah at that age? Yeah. I mean, he can only, so I mean, I always think that he can only do the things he does through the strength that God provides him. Because there's no way a hundred year old, eight year old guy can. Well, I don't know. This guy's 87. Well, up and down a mountain. Up and down a mountain. You can do it. With with books and moving a gold cow around with all the earth. I mean. Not that I don't think God has blessed you. Yeah. Uh, He also, so when he breaks the tablets, I mean, he is angry, but the tablets represent the covenant between God and his people. So he is showing them you have broken this covenant and he's in fact next he's going to say i can go up and maybe i can repair this thing guys repair this relationship so moses said to aaron why did this people or what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them and aaron said let not the anger of my lord burn hot you know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the, into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> so Aaron's like, you know, you may recall, like... He, he, he actually molded it. Yeah. Uh, he clearly, yeah, we know he clearly uh, made it himself. It was premeditated, but he's like, it it's a, takes you back to Genesis where it's like Adam says, this woman whom you gave to me, gave it to me, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm just a, I'm a victim too here, Moses. Uh, yeah. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of Yahweh, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So basically, Moses, remember God didn't necessarily tell him to do this, but God had given Moses and entrusted Moses with this leadership responsibility. Um. And nowhere does it say God's mad that Moses does this. But basically what he does, right? He draws the line in the sand and he says, whose side are you on anyway? So all the Levites come over, of course, 
And then he says, okay, round up the instigators because there's capital punishment here for the instigators. So it, it's not that they went and they killed uh, 3,000 random people. I think it's pretty clear that what they did is they rounded up the instigators who basically had started the calf worship and the orgy and all that and said, now th this is capital punishment. And uh, everyone else is going to remember that. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. I like that in Hebrew. Sometimes we, uh, it gets translated a different way, but that's, off, that's the, the idiom of how it works. Like, you know, they, you verb a great, a great noun, like the same thing, right? You've sinned a great, a great sin. <laughs> I always joke at home uh, when I sneeze. I always <laughs> I say, I sneezed a great sneeze. <laughs> All right, and now I will go up to Yahweh. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin and have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you, are, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But Yahweh said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel, my messenger, shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then Yahweh sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So from God too, there was, there was a punishment. Chapter 33. All right. Yahweh said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send a messenger before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For Yahweh had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. For uh, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So God's saying, like, I can't go with you. I'll send an angel, but I'm not going to go with you. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called in the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and Yahweh would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, 
each at his tent door. Thus Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I wish I had that sort of relationship, right? When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. All right, Moses' intercession. Moses said to Yahweh, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up out of here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. All right, there's a lot. I wish we had time to read John 1, John chapter 1. But there's this part in in John chapter 1 where he says, And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we will cling to those two words and read that in just a minute as well. So he says, Show me your glory. Verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. And Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. All right, chapter 34. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as Yahweh commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed. And this, this next phrase gets cited and repeated more than any other part in Scripture. So in all the next, the Old Testament writings through, you know, the kings and the, the judges, the kings, uh, and all the writings of the prophets, this gets cited more than anything else. All right. Yahweh, Yahweh. 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So that first word merciful, it could, you could also translate it compassionate. And I like it that way too, because if you translate it compassionate, then the next word gracious could potentially be translated merciful, right? But the, the word, first word compassionate, it has the same root of womb. So it's like the way that a mother looks at her newborn baby. That's the way I look at my people. And we actually have a baby with us today. Right? So you're a, <laughs> your dad looks at you compassionately. Uh, yeah, compassionate, compassionate and merciful or gracious. Slow to anger, and we see this a lot. And if we're going to criticize, not criticize, if we're going to critique one character of God, I think we may at first often say the slow to anger, because this also then would like kind of beg the question that we see in Scripture so often. Why do the wicked prosper, O God? Why haven't you brought your justice upon this situation yet and judged the guilty and freed us from this injustice, you know, but thanks be to God that he is slow to anger (laughs) with us, Uh, slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. So the steadfast love uh, is the Hebrew word chesed, (laughs) and it's the, the never giving up always and forever sort of covenant love. So, uh, it used to be, I think the King James always translates it merciful and whatever mercy, merciful really meant to them back then in English. I think that we use merciful a little bit different. Uh, but you know, now it often gets translated steadfast love or loyal love because even just love itself doesn't like fully carry the weight of what chesed actually means. And then faithfulness, that he's all, he's true and he's faithful. So he doesn't lie to us is in particular with his covenants and his promises. He's going to stay true and faithful to his covenant promises. So again, in John chapter one, when we have seen his glory, glory as of the only uh, son of the father, full of grace and truth, he's pulling from like the Greek Septuagint, he's pulling those charged words and he's saying, you know, the word which was God that created in the beginning, that was God, that was with God and has the glory of God and he's full of grace and truth. He's saying Jesus is included in chapter 34 of Exodus, the one that came down and promised in his covenant to his people. Uh, that's what Jesus is. Verse 7, keeping keeping Hesed, right? Keeping steadfast love for thousands, implying generations. Thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That sounds great. So far, I like Yahweh, right? He's uh, slow to anger. He's full of love and all this. And he uh, forgives sins of thousands of generations. But who will by no means clear the guilty? You have to have both. You have to have 
a merciful God, but you also have a God. You have to have a God who is just. Because again, we said this last week, but if we didn't have a just God, who would we have? Right? A God that just condones sin, that condones injustice, that condones living in a way which leads to death. I don't want that God. I need a just God. And because I need a just God, he's also got to be merciful so that he can forgive me and show me a path to life, which is ultimately through his son, Jesus. So who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Again, the idea third and fourth is not that he's saying, okay, if like a father sins, then even his great-grandchildren are going to get punished for it. I think it implies two things. One, sin has consequences, and it can, right? Like in some ways, it does get passed from generation to generation. And the next generation learns the sins of the parents. Uh, but elsewhere in Scripture, plenty of times it's very clear you are, you are accountable for your own sins. But also the, the third and fourth is a Hebrew idiom of saying, however many generations, so however many people uh, reject my ways, then they're going to be held accountable for that. So Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And of course, that's what he does. And he says he's going to go with them. Let's fast forward down to verse 29, because this also becomes important. Um, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that Yahweh had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before Yahweh to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So Moses comes down. And he has really captured the image of God to the point that, remember, not only did he intercede first and say, hey, God, remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not to destroy your people, right? Because it would do damage to your name. Think about what the Egyptians and the other, uh, the other nations would say. Even if these people deserve to be destroyed, it would do damage to your holy name. I think that's part of the implication. So he intercedes there. And then when he goes back up, he offers his own life. So he becomes a righteous intercessor who goes up and says, if you need to punish somebody, blot me out of your book. Kill me instead of them. 
if that will do the divine justice that needs to happen. And then, so he does this and he sees the, you know, he sees the glory of God and he comes back down again and he's literally shining, right? So it's like the, the image of God, uh, which is brilliant in and of itself. He gets so close to that, probably the closest any human can, that he's literally shining. And again, New Testament authors pick up on this in the book of Hebrews, most directly, I think. You know, he says in the new covenant, the author of Hebrews, in this new better covenant that we have with Jesus, he, with unveiled faces, we can approach the throne of God. So he's drawing, you're supposed to have Exodus on the mind at the foot of the mountain or on the mountain making this covenant. We get a new better covenant with Jesus and we can even approach God with unveiled faces because even in Moses in the old covenant, he had to veil his face, right? But Jesus completes everything and he replaces this covenant from Mount Sinai with a new better one. Uh, Paul talks about like, you know, again, I, I forget the immediate context, but shining like stars. Yeah, so do everything without grumbling and complaining and uh, basically live like Christians so you may shine among them like the stars in the sky. So Moses not only was close to God, but he... His uh, attributes became as close to God as they could get. Yeah, I think so. But even Moses dies, but right? I mean, even Moses he, dies. A human, yeah, yeah. That's why his light shines so bright. Yeah. So I'd, now that he's come back down, we can contrast the leadership of Aaron and Moses. So Aaron makes no attempt to correct them, he tries to placate the people. But of course, Moses refuses, even refuses Yahweh's offer of a special status, as you pointed out, uh, that he could have been the new Abraham, right? But he, uh, he yielded from that. So Aaron caves to the people's desires, and Moses intercedes for God's mercy for the nation. What mercy do you mean? Oh, no, I'm, I'm uh, just contrasting. Oh, okay. Yeah, between the two. So even though Aaron tries to redeem the event by dedicating the festival to Yahweh, we saw that they rose up to play. So there's some bad stuff going on. Uh, but Moses, so Aaron was going to attach Yahweh's name to this bad festival. <laughs> but Moses shows concern for God's reputation. And he shares God's anger over the incident. And he brings consequences to the idolaters. But he also binds his life with the people, saying, blot me out of your book. I read a commentary that um, talked about the 3,000 that were slaughtered when um, Moses came back down from the mountain. Um, it matches the number that Peter saved on Pentecost, which would also have been the Pentecost. It was like 50 days after they left Egypt as well, and it was 50 days after the resurrection and that Pentecost. So there was 3,000 saved to replace the souls that were lost when Moses came down. Yeah. I know some commentators get really into numbers, and I think there's a lot of times there's a lot to it, you know, and it's intentionally hyperlinking, if you will. So the 3,000 lost that day out of Israel, you know, because then there's also this, 
It's not that the church, right, which spreads throughout all the world after Jesus's ascension, uh, replaces the Israelites, but because it's supposed to be both and. You know, there were a lot of Jewish Christians, but then God also goes out into among the world. So I like that link, yeah. All right, well, to wrap it up, because we are out of time, we will uh, we'll fast forward to the very end of the book at Exodus 40, uh, at the very, very end. We skip a lot of the, they institute the tabernacle, they get the rest of the plans, and then they build it. And when you crawl through it, there's, there's some really cool stuff in there. But, you know, maybe another day we'll do, maybe someday we'll talk more about Leviticus. And a lot of this gets echoed again in Leviticus, which is actually pretty cool. But at the very, very end, Exodus 40, uh, verse 34. So they build the tabernacle and they're ready for God to come move in with them, more or less. <laughs> Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So implying, I'm assuming, the cloud and the fiery cloud, right? And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then... They did not sit out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So it kind of ends with kind of a cliffhanger. Moses can't go into the tent. <laughs> but we'll find out. So you turn the page, and then all of Leviticus, uh, all of Leviticus gets to... Uh, about God repairing this relationship and giving them the keys, the tools that they needed to get closer to him. Because the closer to the center of the tabernacle, the closer to the Holy of Holies you get, uh, sort of the more you have to do. You know, and even then it's only the high priest who once a year gets to go into the Holy of Holies. But with that, let's uh, end with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy scriptures, for your word, and for the truths it teaches about you. Uh, we thank you for being not just a forgiving God who sent Jesus to cleanse us and purify us of our sin, but also a God who is just and in his justice found a way to restore us and make us righteous again. So we thank you for doing that for us, not because of anything that we can do, but because of your great love for us. We thank you not just for saving your people out of slavery in Egypt, but saving us from our sin. So we ask that you empower us, that as we go into the world, that you empower us to live like your children and to take your wisdom and shine like stars among the nations so that all can see through us uh, how great your gospel is and also turn to you and live. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.